This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in to Triple R, whether you're doing it uh, live or via some dodgy podcast that you've downloaded or something like that. We appreciate you listening to an hour of science. In the studio with me is Dr. Linden. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. How are you? I'm good. How That's is good. your... How's the weather world for you? Oh, good. Is it okay? Yes, very good. I've just come back from a week in Darwin where I was learning about tropical meteorology, tropical weather, tropical oceans, tropical cyclones. Do, do you have to go to a tropical climate. site to do uh, well, tropical? Yeah, yeah. It, it that definitely made the conference much feel much more real when you could go out and experience yeah. that beautiful, calm, dry season. Nice. Dr. Crystal, good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Do you go to conferences like that? Oh, I, I haven't been to Darwin in a very long time, but I hear it is an excellent place for tropical medicine conferences as well. Mm, so, yeah. yes, many of my colleagues uh, regularly travel to Darwin, and uh, it's a beautiful city. Yeah. Well, I, I'd love to be like a chocolate researcher and then go to Belgium or something. You know, like, I think, <laughs> you know, you can just theme where you go to conferences to where it's most appropriate. I, yeah, don't know about that. Well, uh, we're going to give you an hour of science. We're going to start with some news, folks, and then we've got a couple of great guests who are waiting out in the green room, very excited to be talking about their research. Dr. Lyndon, do you want to start us off? Yeah, um, I'm going to start, though. You guys don't have to answer this. It's a bit of a personal question. I wanted to ask, what is your blood type? Do you know? I don't. Oh, I don't do. know. Yeah, yeah. Dr. I'm a regular yours? blood donor, so I do know that my blood type is very common. I'm an A positive person. Oh, lovely. Yeah, so I get down to the blood a bank positive. when I can. You're happy you're A positive. I'm it a sounds a good. Positive. That you're, you're like, if someone says you're A negative, it's like, really? No, I'm a positive person. <laughs> Literally <laughs> in nature. I can see that, Dr. Chris. Well, I'm an O, I'm O positive, I think, oh. which means that I can give my blood to, to anyone, a lot of people. To a lot of people, but I can only take other O positive blood back mm. if I if I need mm. blood. So I can never remember mine. And I think it's, you know, that, you know I've been told it a hundred times and I just keep forgetting because it's one of those things where I just don't remember my blood type. Mm. Well, I, just don't, yeah. I think it's about almost 50% of the population are A, blood type, about 40% are O, positive yep. or negative, and then the remaining 10% or so are either B or AB, right? Mm. And the reason that we have these different blood types is because our blood cells have different uh, kind of sugar-type molecules on them. They're called antigens, and that's how you can identify which blood type you have, okay? And we know that... Uh, A's can, A blood can be transferred to other A blood type people and B with B and O can go uh, to anybody. Because O is basically like negative, like O, is, o means not, neither A nor B. Yes, yeah. so O means it doesn't have any of these little molecules on them, these So antigens. if you're A, you can have O because it doesn't have anything offensive to you. Exactly, but if you are O and you try to have A, then your immune oh, system oh. will be like, nope, that's an enemy, let's get rid of that, yeah. which is yeah. really what you want if you're getting a blood transfusion, yeah, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, so... Dr. Crystal, you're amazing that you give blood. Uh, one in 30 people in Australia give blood, apparently. But one in 30. Yeah, but mm. one in three... Need it. Need it yeah. at some stage in their lives. So there is this big uh, shortage, generally, all the time, about mm. how much blood we need uh, to help medicine go along. And often the blood service will put out a call and say, you know, we really need A-plus donors. Well, no, because that's quite common. But, mm. they'll, you know, they'll put out a call for O donors particularly, you know, and at, at times, especially around the holiday season and other times when you might imagine that they're going to might need more uh, yeah. supplies. Yeah, and there's also this big push. Well, there's research that's been going on to try to figure out, okay, is there a way that we can make A-blood become O-type blood? 
to help, you know, deal with this shortage and help make blood that's being donated more useful. And this is uh, work that I was looking at this week that's been published in Nature Microbiology uh, out of Canada, about at the University of British Columbia in Canada, that has actually managed to do this. They've actually managed to... Uh, clean, well no, clean's not the right word but remove these antigens these little molecules that are on top of the, the A blood cells and make them look like O blood cells, which mm. is pretty cool. I didn't mm. even realise mm. that you could do this and the way that they've done it is they've used microbes from the gut Wow! the old magic microbes from the gut that just keep on giving, right? The more yeah. we learn about them, the more important we realise that they are and this group, they uh, took a faecal sample and they extracted some DNA and they extracted the different DNAs of different microbes that kind of line the gut wall because some of those microbes, little little molecules, eat sort of sort of eat sugar type molecules that, that line the gut, right? Crystal's looking yeah. at me. I hope I'm explaining this sort of correctly. And so they were able to extract these different microbes and when they combined them together in different ways. At first, they didn't really see anything. It was about four years they were working on this research, trying different stuff, sorting this, trying different things out. And other researchers have tried this in the past, but with kind of limited success. But with these guys over in Canada, they were able to get it done. They combined these two enzymes together and bam, get rid of these antigens on the A blood cell. They've tried it on human blood and it works okay. So there you go. How cool is that? That's really cool. And you've got to think about how scalable it is because that's the thing is that you can, you can mess around with small volumes of blood in a lab. But if you're talking about mm. transfusion packs, mm. that is literally, you know, trillions, trillions of, yeah. upon trillions of liters of blood. So to be able to do that at scale, I think is the real question. Yeah. And I think that's what's been the problem with in the past. Mm. I mean, there has been, I was reading the other day a, a study that also managed to do this back in 2005, but I don't think it was scalable. I don't mm. think it was very economical. Whereas this one, it seems to be maybe a little bit more efficient. I mean, they still need to look look at uh, whether it's managed to get rid of all of these antigens, all these sugar cells on top of the A blood cell that identifies it as A. And they also need to make sure that this technique isn't doing anything else weird to the A blood cell. Uh, mm. But it's still pretty pretty positive stuff. Ha, positive. See what I did there? <laughs> there yeah, but, but it's amazing wow. to think that you could make blood donations go just that little bit extra, Exactly. A little bit further. Yeah, imagine yeah. that if you yeah. could say, Wonderful. I know my blood's pretty rare but anybody could use it if H- you How do. easy is it to determine what a person's blood type is like in Very terms easy. of, is it just down a microscope you can see and tell? Um, they do something called a coagulation test I think and right. so they look to see whether or not they're reactive and it's something you could easily do like in drop format. You right. Know, very quickly. On the, yeah. On the spot. Yeah, yeah. Much. You, can, yeah. you can type you can type Always blood that. very yeah. quickly. Yeah. 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 I always wondered whether I should get a tattoo because like, <laughs> I forget. You know, like if it, or you're unconscious, you know, does it help? But if it's that easy and quick, it probably it's very matter. easy and quick to yeah. type someone's blood. Might be and if in doubt, they just give you O. Yeah. All right. Right. They're just own egg. I thought Australian. it would be better to actually have printed on my stomach somewhere, you know, I do not have an appendix. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, don't you have a scar? Doesn't well, a scar so, say so, that? So, I had the laparoscopic removal of my appendix, so you really can't tell uh, because the scars are the same as if you have a hernia operation or anything. Oh. Else. You can't you can't tell. So I've got a few scars there, and some of them I like to say, you know, from the thresher shark's tail. But um, in reality, um, I've had I think three laparoscopic procedures during my life. And one of them was an appendix one, but they're all pretty much in the same spot. So you yeah, really. But do you know what would really help? 
having a universal electronic digital medical record. electronic <laughs> medical record. That actually works. Imagine yeah. having that. That would be real. That would wow. solve a lot of those problems. Anyway, you know, but we won't go into that. You're just such a ridiculous dreamer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> why would well, we do that? Speaking of ridiculous dreams, um, this week I was astounded to see that um, a Russian scientist has announced that they plan to produce more gene-edited babies. Nice. Oh, yeah. It's not just nice what we at need. all. It's greatly concerning to the scientific community, but also just to general global community about this quite what i see to be quite an unethical um uh procedure in terms of you know permanently altering the human genome in a reproducible way you know the there's a actually an an international moratorium on making um uh, gene edited um uh, embryos and and actually Mm. allowing them to progress into 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 viable um you know living human beings Uh, and this kind of came off the back of um some quite shocking announcements last november when a chinese scientist really shocked the world by getting up at a conference and saying hey i've used the gene editing tool crispr to alter the genes in these human embryos and i've used them um to create you know uh, pregnancies that's led to the birth of 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 two i remember that one yeah, yeah live Live babies. And were they, what were they resistant to HIV? HIV. Yeah. Well, I can't remember what that was. Yeah. yeah, the gene that had been targeted is called CCR5. And we know that in, um, some, uh, human populations, particularly in Northern Europe, there is a naturally occurring CCR5 mutation that, right. because, uh, that does confer resistance to HIV infection because, um, the HIV uses the CCR5 protein to enter into mm, cells. Okay. And so there is a population of people, um, who do naturally have this naturally occurring mutation and so the idea was we will replicate that naturally occurring mutation in these babies but scientifically that's completely unnecessary Mm. there are plenty of assisted reproductive technologies that you can use that can ensure that hiv positive couples can have healthy children there's drugs there's all sorts of trans there's there's many ways to prevent the transmission Mm. of hiv from mother to child that that do not require demonstrations the extreme um intervention that is permanently modifying the human genome yeah um so and and actually when it when the um when when the claims that this chinese scientist had done this mutation um actually the gene editing seems to have missed it's actually created a different mutation in that in that protein not the one they were seeking to replicate um and so so even then it's not not justified Mm. from a scientific perspective that but it's somehow being used in a way to to justify oh we just want to protect these children from getting hiv when actually there are other more safer demonstrated ways of doing it and And so uh, yeah, I've heard, I've heard these sorts of scientific justifications before from certain groups, especially around GM crops, you know, and, well, you know, we're using them there, but the people are starving there, like, and it's like, hang on, whoa, 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 whoa. that isn't an excuse to necessarily introduce something that you wouldn't feel comfortable introducing in your own country. This happens all the time. Well, I think I think what's really clear is that, the, that there's been no um, long-term uh, safety and um, mm. sort of really looking at well, what what is the permanent um, uh, impact of making these inheritable changes that are permanent in not only these children's genomes yeah. but in all of their children. Yeah. How would you study that? If, you well, know, that's, without that's these... a long-term study, isn't it? That's yeah. the thing, and it's, and it's one that you you wouldn't really know the problems until they started occurring. And I think the answer is slowly. Yeah. And I think what's happening right now is that the speed at which um, uh, uh, these announcements are coming out. Well, if if China has the technology to genetically alter people, potentially this is almost like a a bit of a, a biological um, race, if you like. Yeah. And say, well, maybe other countries would like to so, say that they have this technology. So, what did this Russian scientist say? So, the Russian scientist has come out and said, "I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to try." 
and edit the CCR5 gene to prevent HIV um, and I'm going to apply to the Russian authorities for regulatory approval to do this and I'm hoping to start my experiments next year. And, and given that the Chinese scientists effectively failed to do that successfully this would be a big win for them if they managed to demonstrate that is that, is that the well part I, I, of the thinking? I honestly don't know what the thinking is um mm. because because there are other ways to prevent <coughs> hiv yeah, transmission yeah, yeah. that yeah. do not it's de- it's demonstration stuff showing they can this, do the technology and and really it's if it's demonstration stuff to show they can do the technology then nothing has you know the global community feels that there aren't the appropriate safety mechanisms in place at, and even the ethical implications of saying well you are permanently altering a human's genome and not only their genome but all of their progeny like all the people mm. who come after will, will carry that mutation in their genomes and what does that mean for us as as, as, a, as a civil society crystal the, the part that i find interesting here is around you know when we talk i know we always talk about the precision and accuracy of crispr right the chinese example shows well, well maybe not so much but Every time we think of a complex disease like, you know, MS or so forth, like the number of genes potentially involved in these things is not a couple. It's usually hundreds or thousands. How is it that they can even vaguely be sure that that one particular gene that they're altering doesn't have other impacts? And that, uh, that is one of the big questions about the CRISPR editing technologies, that there are off-target yeah, effects. Yeah. We know that there are off-target effects that may occur in other parts of the genome, and we don't know mm. what those, what, what, how that may manifest. And so, you know, look, the WHO, the World Health Organization, have put together a governance committee, you know, to really put together an ethical governance, you know, set of policies. Yep. But they're not planning to report till the middle of next year. Um, and so, then, right? <laughs> and, and, and this Russia, so, so, so yeah. you can see that there's a real yeah. tension here in the timings, in that you know they want they, that the international community wants to make sure that they 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 have the time to debate, you know, to reach some consensus about the, how this stuff should be regulated. But meanwhile, it, it's happening. Mm. And how enforceable if the WHO, the World Health Organization, does come together with a set of guidelines and a set of do's and don'ts? How I know from the World Meteorological Organization, they provide a lot of advice or guidance, but it's not. As if it's policeable or enforceable, or and that's the like question that. that's been raised about the Chinese scientists. Even if they have been shown to um, have have uh, potentially, um, uh, you know, you know, done something that's actually banned, there's no penalties associated with that. It's not yeah. a criminal offence. Um, and a lot of the time, it's because this technology has evolved out um, faster than the regulations. So the regulations don't specifically say anything about this technology because this technology didn't exist when the regulations were written. And so it's this, it's, it's this two-speed effect that we're seeing right now. And so what's really clear is that there's increased pressure to intervene and to regulate, and time is of the essence because mm. the gene is out of the bottle. Um, if this technology is already being used, um, you know, and China has claimed that this is the case, Russia is now saying that they would like to do this, um, there needs to be a greater pressure and a greater voice around how 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 to respond um, to this that, you know, really does take into take that, you know, global consensus in, in, into consideration because we actually all have to agree what happens next. Yeah, the part I find fascinating about this is that we even know about it. Like, from China and Russia, I'm actually surprised that they're even making us aware in the Western world that, that they're doing it. You know, that there's no need for them to necessarily do that. They're, I mean, that's the thing. Like, it's like, it's interesting when you compare this to, you know, um, you know, experiments using any sort of nuclear technology over the last sort of 50 years. The one thing with nuclear is pretty hard, actually. You know, like, a lot of the restriction there has come from the fact that a lot of countries just can't do it because it's hard or they don't have the materials. But CRISPR is... Someone referred... Um, was telling me that if you, you were smart enough to make aspirin, you could use CRISPR. And I thought, is that, I'm um, not sure what sort of analogy that is, but, 
But it That's seems mixing to me, chemistry and yeah, yeah, yeah. molecular biology <laughs> yeah, slightly. But, but you know, it was relatively simple in in the space of molecular biology. This was a relatively simple tool. I think that was the point they were making. But to have access to all of the things that you would need to be able to um, to actually progress that into human mm. life is a much different. No, that, that's a different scenario. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. I mean, so. you can do some gene editing in a in a tube yeah. in a lab yeah, very exactly. simply. Yeah. That but part, what they were that part, to. But then yeah. to be able to actually make a baby different. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, but you know. Someone in China has claimed to do it. Someone yeah. in Russia has said they'd like to do it. Um, I think that there needs to be a, a, a greater acceleration of the discussions at a much higher level as to what that means for, for us globally. Yep. I mean, I haven't heard from the guy doing the head transplants in the while. How's he going? Remember that? Was it a North Korean scientist or someone that was doing the head transplants with dogs and working up to humans? I only hear about that stuff through you, Dr. Oh, Shane. <laughs> I read these things and I just think... Why are you? <laughs> I get it. I get the scientific aspect of it, but it's like the ethical elements are really untouched. So. Well, hopefully the Russian health ministry will clarify their position on these uh, experiments. But I think that a lot could be done in terms of international um, uh, discussion and debate. You know, at all levels, yeah. not just within the scientific community. Yeah. Three. Triple. Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Triple R. In the studio with us now is our first guest for today. His name is Januka Atanaka. Did I get it even close, Januka? That is perfect. That sounds like <laughs> Sri Lanka, really. <laughs> oh, my God. Um, I thought I'd have to drink something to get that right because you have a great name. Now, you're from the University of Melbourne in the School of Earth Sciences. And, Januka, you, you've been looking at how... This is something I hadn't heard about before, but the idea that certain earthquakes sort of interact somehow or talk to each other and there's some sort of interplay between them. Can you give us a bit of a rundown of, first of all, how, how do earthquakes normally sort of propagate around from place to place? I mean, we, we often hear this idea that, you know, the plates are interacting or connecting. Is that, is that so? Are they, you know, a big earthquake here? Does that affect the plate next door? Does that happen? That is absolutely true, Dr. Shen. Uh, now, one of the classic examples of this is happening right now in uh, in North Anatolia, that is uh, northern Turkey. Mm-hmm. There's this uh, fault line that is about 1,500 kilometers long, and uh, that is separating uh, the Eurasian plate to the north yep. and the Anatolian plate to the south. Uh, there was an earthquake in 1939, a magnitude 7.8 earthquake that killed about 30,000, more than 30,000 people there. And uh, this happened in a uh, easternmost segment of uh, the fault line. And ever since, there have been 12 earthquakes uh, having a magnitude larger than 6.7. Uh, Progressively marching towards uh, from east to west uh, mm. along the fault line, each of these earthquakes have killed many, many, many people. Last of which occurred in 1999. Actually, there, there were two earthquakes. One occurred in August yep. uh, of 1999, and the second one occurred in uh, November. The the August earthquake occurred near a town called Ismit, and that killed about more than 70,000 people. And then uh, there was another earthquake three months later in November. Uh, that was a magnitude 7.2 earthquake that killed about uh, 800 people. Mm. So we see this, you know, interacting earthquakes occurring in some parts of the world. It's just that we need seismometers to locate them uh, when when the magnitude is smaller, and which is what we see had happened in Victoria uh, about seven years ago. Mm. So just before we get on to the Victorian thing, the other question I had for you is, we hear about pre-shocks, the actual earthquake, 
and aftershocks. How do you know that? How do you know which one's which, and how do you know that this next earthquake that I experience is an aftershock and not a completely separate earthquake that's unrelated? How do we know that? We don't know for sure. Okay. Uh, when when an earthquake occurs, we don't know whether it's going to be a foreshock. Mm-hmm. Uh, or the main shock or the aftershock. Yeah. You have to keep on looking at the fault plane yeah. and uh, uh, figure out uh, the magnitudes of the earthquakes. And only by figuring out the magnitude would you be able to say that something is a uh, uh, foreshock, a main shock, or an aftershock. And I suppose in our head we have the idea that aftershocks are, are more minor. But if you if you're you know in Japan and you've just experienced something on around a nine on the Richter scale and aftershocks a seven. A seven's a pretty mean-looking earthquake. You know, that's that doesn't feel like an aftershock. That feels like an earthquake in its own right. Definitely. I mean, a good example is uh, the earthquake that happened in 2010 in Haiti uh, mm-hmm. that killed about 230,000 people. Yeah. That was a magnitude seven event. So, yes, uh, if, if the main shock is pretty large, like a magnitude nine or a 9.2 that occurred in uh, Sumatra in 2004, they are capable of producing very large aftershocks, and that those aftershocks will be pretty dangerous as well. Mm. How much does the damage depend on, first of all, the depth of the earthquake, but also just the the material that the earthquake's dealing with, so the type of soil, the type of land? I mean, how much does that play into what we see at the Very surface? much so. So there's a fundamental relationship with between the damage that an earthquake can cause and... Uh, uh, the depth of the event. If the event is uh, fairly shallow, mm. we expect larger damage yep. and fatalities. But if uh, the depth is greater, then uh, even a magnitude 7 would um, not cause much damage. Mm. And also, if the fault is strong, if if the earthquake is breaking a very strong fault, then uh, much of the energy is expended on breaking the fault rather than, you know, uh, radiating seismic energy. So if that's the case, you would expect uh, the damage to be less as well. Yeah. Now, in the movies, the, 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 land, the land always you know moves apart and you get a hole. That actually doesn't happen really in earthquakes, does it? Not does it? really, not really. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, there are different kinds of uh, falls. We call, uh, you know, reverse falls if uh, the fault is coming together. Mm-hmm. One fault block is riding on top of the other. And uh, there are strike-slip faults, which is uh, very much like uh, the North Anatolian fault. Uh, just uh, rocks are sliding past each other, mm. and then there are normal falls. That that's the usual case that that is probably pre- um, uh, you know uh, shown in movies yep. where you know ground open up opens up and uh, you know a gaping hole is created at the at the location of the earthquake. So. Uh, that is not exactly how earthquakes occur uh, yeah. in real world. Yeah, because it's really just, yeah, I mean, that, anyway, Lyndon, <laughs> we can well, go for a while I mean, on we're, that. We're talk- you love this, Dr. Shane. Every great. time we get someone coming yeah, in to yeah. talk about earthquakes, you're like, all everyone the shut up. All the, questions, questions. Sorry, all the questions I should have Googled. <laughs> yeah. So we're talking about these uh, fault line earthquakes, these horrible earthquakes that kill hundreds of thousands of people. But, of course, we're in Australia where we are sitting in the middle of a plate, right? So we don't get any earthquakes, do we? That is not exactly true, Dr. Linton. Uh, we get a lot of earthquakes. Uh, we have a seismic monitoring ne- network uh, that we have been developing and deploying over the last uh, two to three years um, with uh, the help of uh, people like uh, Oscope. And we currently have uh, about 40 stations uh, monitoring earthquakes in and around uh, Victoria, mostly monitoring seismicity in the uh, eastern parts of uh, the state. And what we see is that 
the number of earthquakes that we detect goes up by uh, as a as a function of the number of stations we have <laughs> because you know small smaller and smaller events can be detected when when the station is uh, nearby so you're looking at victoria i suppose that's because that's project based but is there an argument for why Southeast Australia might be more seismically active than other parts of Australia? That's a very interesting question that we are investigating right now, uh, Dr. Linton. Um, now, in Australia, if you take uh, as a whole, there are four regions uh, in the country that shows clustered seismicity. Southeastern part of uh, Australia, where we live in, is one of those regions, and uh, the Flinders range is, uh, ranges is another uh, we have two uh, regions in uh, southwest Australia and northwest Australia. So for Flinders Ranges and uh, the southeastern Australia, we see something anomalous in the thermal activity. The average uh, thermal flux expected in, in the Australian crust is, is about 40 to 50 watts, uh, uh, milliwatts per square meter. Uh, whereas in, in the Flinders Ranges and the southeastern uh, parts of the country, we see that this number is around 70 to 90. Wow, so the, it's, it's warmer, it's hotter it's underneath hotter. the surface. Exactly, it's we hotter. Expect. And we don't know exactly how this is linked to seismicity. We think that there's some sort of a weakening process is ongoing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, it's a correlation that we see. It's not the causation. It might not be the causation. We can't say exactly what's causing uh, this clustering of uh, earthquakes, but uh, there is a correlation between uh, thermal activity and seismicity. And you've been looking at some interesting sort of pairs of earthquakes recently in Victoria. I mean, tell us what's happening there, because it sounds like you're sort of seeing some effects that haven't been seen before. Yes, so uh, we studied an earthquake uh, that happened in 2012, uh, June 19th, there was an earthquake near Thorpedale that rocked uh, the people there and, uh, you know, people all around the state. Um, the I remember feeling that earthquake, um, like, in June of um, 2012. Like, like the, 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 my lampshade shook and the house shook and, and, um, and, and I knew what it was because I've experienced maybe three or four earthquakes in my life, you know, not directly, but, you know, I knew exactly what it was. And so it's like, I think that was an earthquake. Was it an earthquake? How do I, how do I tell? Quick, to Twitter. And, you know, all these people were reporting that they'd felt the same earthquake. So, yeah. It's, it's interesting. Even in that Melbourne, we, we definitely felt it. It's interesting that you say that, um, you know, you felt it and you, you felt weird about it. You, you should feel weird about it because uh, we estimated the magnitude of this earthquake and together with fell reports we believe this is the largest earthquake to occur in victoria since 1967 mm. uh, there was a magnitude 5.7 event uh, in victoria and like we believe that this is the largest to occur um, since then. But there were, it wasn't if there was three hundred thousand deaths or anything like some of Absolutely. those other earthquakes. Mm. I mean, uh, if you think, of, if you go back to nineteen eighty nine, uh, the Newcastle earthquake, uh, that was only a magnitude five five point four event, and that killed thirteen people, unfortunately, and uh, caused uh, damage of about uh, Australian dollars four billion worth. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't build to the same codes necessarily that, that some, you know, like New Zealand and Japan and California, for example, would, would build to. And I guess that's the thing, because we're not on a fault line, we didn't think we had to. Yeah. So, so this, this, this earthquake was one, and, and that had some connection to another more recent earthquake. Yes. So, uh, so what we did was soon after this earthquake occurred, uh, 
2012, uh, the University of Melbourne Seismolo- Seismology Research Group, plus uh, with the help from uh, OSCOPE, we deployed uh, 13 temporary stations. And uh, with those stations, we started monitoring seismicity, um, you know, the aftershocks that we talked about earlier. Um, and about a month later from that main event, uh, there was another significant earthquake that occurred, and uh, that too was felt by people uh, around the state. So usually the idea is that, uh, you know, when a, when a you know, significant earthquake occurs from uh, after a, uh, another significant earthquake, the idea is that the second earthquake is an aftershock, like we talked mm, about. Yeah. So and that means, I'm sorry, just to correct, an aftershock is where this, like, it kind of comes from the same source. Is yes, that right? Exactly. Okay. It, it should occur on the same fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, since we had this very precise data from our temporary station, we were able to locate these, triangulate the location of these earthquakes very precisely. And what we saw was the first earthquake and the second significant earthquake were separated by about seven kilometers and they had their own aftershock clusters. Interesting. This told us that, uh, you know, it's, it's just two, uh, it's not just one fault that, uh, uh, ruptured, but it's two faults and there was some sort of connection between the first and the second fault and uh, we can talk about the mechanisms as we, uh, you know, discuss this further. Yeah. Um, I mean, we're, we're almost out of time, but it, it seems to me sort of logical that, uh, you know, if you have one fault sitting within the proximity of an earthquake from another fault, there would be some impact there of, you know, just the energy release passing through that second fault. Exactly. I think uh, this is what we think had happened. Uh, The shaking from the first event, Mm. uh, you know, changed the hydrological conditions uh, in the vicinity of the second fault and 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 the, you know, it was set off by uh, yeah. some sort of fluid, in, fluid injection. Yeah, give it a nudge. Yeah, so, I mean, that kind of makes sense. That it makes logical sense to me. But given now that you've got this higher sort of resolution data set, does that call into question other things that have previously been known as aftershocks? Now you're thinking, oh, no, this is a ripple effect where another earthquake's been set off somewhere else for other earthquakes around the world? Yes, the thing is, if you want to locate earthquakes very precisely, you need to have stations very nearby. And uh, in most of the um, earthquakes, small earthquakes that we record uh, wherever in the world, you don't get uh, the kind of resolution we have. So, so there are large uncertainties, uh, significant uncertainties in in earthquake yeah. locations. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. I, I'd recommend to anyone listening if you, if you want to see a disturbing series of maps, Google earthquake locations over the last 10 years or something, get that map. Google, in Australia? Oh, no, around the world. Okay. Google um, plate tectonics and you'll see the overlap of the joints and then Google population density <laughs> and you'll find, disturbingly, <laughs> these three na- maps overlap very, very precisely, mm. um, which is why this work is so important to understand earthquakes much better because most of our population centres sit right bang in the middle of these regions of tectonic stress. So, Junika, thanks so much for coming and talking to us. This is really interesting work and I, I think a lot of people wouldn't be aware of just how much you know seismology research is going on in Victoria and how many of, of these monitoring stations and so forth you have and I, I think it's, it's really interesting that there's so much activity and interest um, here in a place that, you know, as we've said, we often think of as a place that doesn't get earthquakes, but it, but it does. So thanks so much for chatting to us. Thanks very much, uh, Shane, and uh, all of you. Uh, it's great to be here. 102.7.
Yeah, welcome back, everybody. You are listening to Einstein the Go Go on Three Triple R. We have our second guest in. He has been on the show before, but some time ago. Dr. Yagish Lankadeva is the laboratory head in the Translational Cardiovascular and Renal Research Group in the National Heart Foundation Future Leader Fellow. I think I missed a word there. National Heart Foundation Future Leader Research Fellow, co-chair of the Flory Mentoring Committee and Discovery Science Theme and at the Flory Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. You guys, did I miss anything? No, I think you got it all. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, we, last time we had you in, it's, it's, it's great to have you back because the last time we had you in, you were looking at bypass surgeries and you were about to start a trial on how you could protect patients' kidney function uh, during and after these these um, particular surgeries where apparently the kidney function can be damaged quite significantly. Give us a bit of on what's happening in a bypass surgery and why that might be a problem. I guess the surprising thing here is you go to the bypass surgery essentially to save your heart yeah, because there's yeah. something wrong with the blood supply to your heart. But what's really emerging is that you might go in to save your heart but you might come out of the surgery losing your kidneys. Yeah, wow. And currently, I mean, there is really no way to prevent this from happening because there was no way to really understand what's happening to our kidneys during an operating procedure such as a bypass surgery. Can, can you, before we go further, can you talk us through the bypass surgery? Because is this stop the heart, take the heart out kind of stuff or is this, how does that work? How does it all work? Okay, so bypass can be done for several reasons. So it could either be done to either replace or repair a valve within mm-hmm. a heart that's preventing blood from going into the heart, yep. or it could be done to implant a medical device to help the heart beat properly. Or in the extreme case scenario where the heart is too damaged to be repaired, it could be done to for a transplant to get okay. a healthy heart right. donated. So, mm. yeah. And so yeah. when it's called bypass, what are you bypassing? You're essentially bypassing your heart and your lungs. So what's, what the surgeons are doing during this time is um, they cross clamp, which is a main, a main artery in your heart, which is called the aorta, mm-hmm. and then they infuse this solution called a cardioplegia solution, and then essentially the job of your heart and your lungs are taken over by a machine called and a heart-lung machine. Wow. And what's your heart doing at that point? Heart does just stop. stop. So, so does that happen automatically or do you have to stop the heart? Yeah, so once the surgeon cross clamps the aorta, that kind of prevents, it uh, creates like a bit of a negative shock to the heart that okay. kind of stops it. And then the perfusionist infuses this solution called a cardioplegia solution that's got some potassium chloride in it to keep the heart stopped. So this is like one of the biggest medical breakthroughs yeah. of the 20th century because yeah, yeah. this essentially allows cardiothoracic surgeons to operate on motionless and bloodless fields yeah. to repair this heart while the patient's cardiovascular system is sustained by the heart-lung machine. But surely there's a time limit with this, right? Like, how long can you keep the heart in this sort of state? You can actually... Some of these surgeries, depending on the complication, can go till very long periods of time. Are we talking three days or two hours? No, 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 no. So standard surgery, I think, is about two two hours. Two Mm. hours. Mm. But depending on the complications, they can be significantly extended. Can I ask a question? Oh, sorry, Chris, did you want to... Go, go, go. Uh, with regards to the heart itself, it, I, and I don't want to be insulting to hearts here, but it's not an overly complex piece of the body, is it? I mean, is that, is that right? Well, I, I mean, mean it's just a muscle with some... I mean, I mean you're probably talking to the wrong person the about heart surgery. surgery. I think relative to things like the, 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 the kidneys and, and, and the immune system and other parts of our body that are you know, highly complicated, how complicated is the heart? 
Look, I, I don't want to kind of tread on someone else's ground and say it's not a complicated yeah. organ, but essentially the main purpose of the heart is to make sure the other organs receive an adequate right. blood supply and oxygen levels. It's a pump. So it's yeah. a pump. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, if this fails, obviously everything goes. Everything goes. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's important to sustain it, but it's also important to not ignore the other more complicated organs as well during this mm. procedure. Mm. But I think that that's why um, you know that the heart bypass machine is possible because you know that the the the, the function of the heart can be replaced for short periods of time but i guess your research is showing that that then has flow on effects into other organs of the body yeah so how you're saying that sometimes people will go in because there's something wrong with their heart and they'll come out and there's something wrong with their kidney how common is that Okay, so I think the Australian statistics for this is that more than twenty thousand patients undergo bypass surgeries, and each year, each year, wow, yep, just in Australia, and up to thirty percent of their kidneys will fail in intensive care units. So it's quite an alarming number. How many of those patients? And I'm not sure about the age profile of mm. these patients. Having I assume most of them are sort of post fifty, but how many of them already have reduced kidney function before they enter the surgery? Yeah, so chronic kidney disease is. Uh, significant risk factor for cardiovascular, I mean, uh, open bypass surgeries. And also patients with coronary heart disease or heart failure, these are common risk factors for mm. needing bypass surgeries. Yeah. I suspect a lot of people, I mean, it's funny, my, not funny, but my father is one of these patients. He oh, went in, he's had a very, you know, his heart is just going great. Yeah. No problems with all that. Very successful surgery at Epworth, fantastic. But his kidneys are somewhat shot afterwards. He's had a lot of trouble and, you know, he's doing okay. He's not, he's not needing any intervention at this point, but certainly there was a big hit to his kidneys as a result of that surgery. So why is that? Mm. Okay. Do we know? Yeah, so that's, I mean, the major barrier to this is that we can't really look in depth in these patients undergoing open heart surgery, what's happening inside the kidneys. All we can do is detect them developing kidney injury once already happened. Uh, you kind of got other stuff going on during the open heart surgery. Yeah. You can't be paying attention yeah. to the kidney. Exactly. Yeah, that makes sense. So what was important was to really develop a large animal model that simulated open heart surgery in humans as close as possible. So what we did was we brought together a team of expert physiologists, so Professor Clyde May, Professor Roger Evans, who are expert renal physiologists. Then we brought together clinical cardiothoracic surgeons into the picture, Andrew Cochrane from um, Monash Health, and we got a clinical perfusionist, Mr. Bruno Marino, and an intensive care physician, Professor Ronaldo Belomo from Austin Health. So together what we did was we created... That's like the ultimate super group. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we were very lucky that everyone was very interested because everyone recognised this was a really big problem and we all want to find out why this is happening. So we developed a large animal model in shape that where we can closely monitor kidney health during open heart surgery while the heart surgery has been undertaken in a manner that's virtually identical to a human undergoing open heart surgery. So what happened, what what we saw was really amazing. I mean, even going through general anesthesia seems to compromise blood supply to the kidney. Right. Right. And then when you transition from general anesthesia to bypass when the machine takes over, it was almost like a second hit to Mm. the kidney where the Mm. blood supply gets even further compromised and this compromised oxygen levels to the inner region of the kidney, which is called the medulla. And this was significantly depleted, which made us, I mean, we saw for the first time that current clinical 
management perfusion practices are really suboptimal mm. to maintain kidney blood supply and oxygen levels. And when you say the perfusionist and perfusion practices, I mean, this is the, the maintenance of flow of all the important fluids in the body that are needed during the time of surgery. That's right. Yeah. So the, the, the rate at which the machine is operating and taking the role yeah. of the heart, yeah. that the, the standard rate they were using was really inadequate for the kidney. Oh, and wow. what, what were those rates set on, though? Because presumably those rates must be such that you keep the brain alive. Mm-hmm. So what, why why is it that they're good enough for the brain and the rest of the body and not for the kidney? I mean, this might really go back to evolution where I think under high-stress scenarios, our body goes into survival mode to actually mm. keep our heart and brain alive right, and right. kind of ignore the non-essential yeah. organs. So, oh. non-essential. <laughs> <laughs> so like, we don't need it just now. So, I mean, I think during this time, the brain, I mean, we keep measuring brain oxygen sats, yeah. saturations by near-infrared spectroscopy, and the brain looks all right, at least through those measurements, but the kidney is really un- in danger. Hmm. So you conducted this open heart sheep surgery, mm-hmm. from what I can understand, and how does that then translate? I mean, were you able to conduct surgery in enough kind of sheep models to get to a level where the kidney was okay? That's exactly what we did at the second part of the study. It was like, okay, now we saw the kidneys in danger. Then the next step was can we do something in this setting to make it better? So what we did was, within clinically feasible ranges, we increased the rate at which the heart-lung machine pumped blood around the body. So in other words, simulating an increased cardiac mm. output. Yeah. And then we also increased the blood pressure from the target range, which is 65 millimeters of mercury, to about 80 millimeters of mercury, which is actually kind of quite similar to us right now, when we're just yeah, in yeah. healthy physiological yeah. settings. If we were to improve these parameters, what we found was that blood supply and oxygen levels of the kidney just returned back to almost back to normal. Hang on, let me let me let me get this straight, Yugesh, because I just don't want to oversell this. But but the the solution to this problem that's affecting thirty percent of the twenty thousand patients, two hundred thousand, twenty thousand, twenty thousand in Australia, okay, yeah, a lot, is to turn the machine up. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it sounds simple, but like. As you say, there are, there are ranges over which these machines are used that are considered safe, mm-hmm. and you're talking about going to the, you know, in some cases maybe a little outside of that, a bit higher, in order to make sure that we're getting what we need. Even though every other part of the body seems to be fine, for the kidney, those ranges just weren't good enough. Well, we don't know what happens to other organs as well. I mean, no, we are concentrating yeah. on the kidney. I mean, liver failure is another common um, right, right. consequence. So we don't know what's happening to the liver as well. But at least in context of the kidney, I mean, we're not talking about increasing these ranges above physiological levels. We are talking about bringing these levels up to what it is like when normally. we are kind of normally. Yeah, normally stuff, and yeah. at least in those kind of ranges, the kidney seems to be doing much better than under current perfusion condition. Yeah. But Shane, I've got to like, kind of bring this up again. We're looking at an experimental setting, whereas yep. uh, humans are a very heterogeneous population. Mm, mm. They have comorbidities. Yep. They have age factors, different risk factors. So we need to kind of look at this in that type of population as well. You guys, the the experiments with the sheep have indicated the you know one possible way of proceeding now is to change the flow of, of fluids through the body and increase those to potentially protect the kidneys and maybe other parts of the body as well. So where do we go to from here? Because it's one thing to be doing it in an animal model but actually being able to utilize that in hospitals is a, a totally different game and you know different people have different problems when they come in no thank you shane thanks for bringing that up so i mean this is what we needed was the evidence from a clinically relevant large animal model to justify clinical studies and mm. that's exactly what we did because we had this done in a right way with the surgeons involved we built this evidence up in about 20 to 25 sh- 
animals and we had the convincing evidence to actually secure seed funding from the National Heart Foundation to actually trial this new intervention of increasing pump flow and blood pressure in patients undergoing open heart surgery. So Professor Roger Evans in collaboration with cardiothoracic surgeons, Professor Andrew Cochran and Julian Smith from mm-hmm. Monash Health will be running this trial to see if such an intervention can reduce the incidence of post-operative acute kidney injury in Jessica. Yeah. I mean this is sort of the thing that you know if those results are positive you want to spread very quickly, presumably, uh, you know, everywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, so in preparation for that, I mean, we have also applied for a multi-center clinical trial, which is really what we need to kind of change clinical guidelines. But all this stuff are contingent on funding requirements. So mm-hmm. we have applied for funding from the National Health and Medical Research Council of Australia. So contingent on funding, we might be able to spread this to other hospitals I mean, as well. You would hope, given I, I can only guess, that this costs a fortune in terms of healthcare when this goes wrong. Mm. Uh, I was going to say, I thought you were saying it costs a fortune to do it, and I was no, thinking, no, no. surely it's, it actually doesn't if all you need to do is turn things up, essentially. Yeah, but if, you, if you're putting people back into hospital with kidney failure and the, just the lifelong issues of dealing with kidney failure are actually extraordinarily expensive for the healthcare system. Absolutely, I and mean, it comes back to what you were talking about with your dad earlier as well. Mm. I mean, even patients that survive acute kidney injury are at a greater risk of developing chronic kidney disease and end-stage kidney disease requiring dialysis in later life Mm. so we need to find out even if there is a recovery from acute kidney injury from a short setting what's going on within these kidneys to predispose these patients to a greater risk of developing chronic kidney disease later on so these are still very important areas of research that remains to be undertaken but the good thing is now we have a platform a sound experimental platform Mm. to undertake this research so yeah, yeah. And I exciting. think, I think yeah. as Dr. Linden was saying earlier, it's amazing that, you know, Melbourne can be proud of the way in which that people have come together to really solve this problem. Yeah, yeah presumably big, the stats we see here are similar to the stats that are seen around the world. So this, if we can improve the statistics of these kidney issues here, then that can be, yeah, life, mm. world-changing. Absolutely. And just before we let you go... Um, We've been talking about the kidneys, but there are many other parts of the body as well that do... Is there a plan to start looking at other parts of the body to see whether or not some of the failure rates for other organs are potentially dealt with in the same way? So I'm fascinated about this, um, um, Shane, because, I mean, even the brain we were talking about earlier, they're looking at near-infrared spectroscopy, which is a very superficial measure of brain oxygenation. Mm. But what I've been doing is I've been implanting probes directly into the brain tissue, and I'm finding that what they're measuring here is completely offset when well, you measure well, inside the organ, bit deeper, yeah. which deeper, which which just kind of makes intu- it's intuitive yeah. because you're measuring very superficial. So I don't think the brain is as protected as you think we have, we yeah. have been led to oh believe, <laughs> and also the liver as well. So I mean, what I want to do in like in the future is to actually implant probes in all regions, like all vital organs, like the kidney, the yeah. liver, yeah. the brain, to get a more comprehensive picture of what proficient conditions we need to actually sustain all these vital organs, not just one. Wow! But Look, it it, <laughs> it sounds like something that has been you know not not investigated as much as it should have been in the past so it's great that you're on it and it's great that we're doing it here in melbourne and it's great that the results are coming out that it could be a relatively easy solution to resolve all these problems a low you know a low or zero cost solution of just you know running things a bit higher you get great having you back in the studio and um good luck with this work you're gonna have to come back and tell us when this is is becoming widespread because i think it sounds like uh, not far away i'd love to shane thanks for having me again thanks so much thank you
Folks, uh, you've been listening to Einstein and Gago on 3 Triple R. Dr. Lena, good to have you in the studio. Good to have be here as always, Dr. Shane. Yeah, Dr. Crystal. Oh, it's great. always a pleasure. And uh, it's not your normal week either. We, you were good enough to I just love me. talking so, science on a yeah, Sunday. Yeah, it's great. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed, folks, so if you're interested, uh, you can follow us on Twitter and you can see photos uh, always placed on Twitter. Liv always grabs out her camera, takes photos, or grabs my phone, I'm not sure what she's doing, but she grabs and puts photos of our guests up on our Twitter feed each week and uh, you'll find links through the Triple R website to the podcasts if you want them. I'm Dr. Shane. Remember, science is everywhere. Have a fabulous weekend and we'll talk to you again in about a week's time. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.